This is the Yale University Press Podcast. I'm Michael Hoke. We classify people for better or for worse by many different criteria, age, race, gender. Another marker we use is size. Today, I'm joined by Lynn Vallone, professor of English and Childhood Studies at Rutgers University and author of Big and Small, A Cultural History of Extraordinary Bodies. Lynn, thank you for coming on today. Thank you for the invitation. What what are ex- extraordinary bodies? Oh, they could be many, many things. Um, they could be persons of extra large or extra small size, so, or, so giants or dwarves. They may also be children who are bodies uh, out of scale with adult bodies. They can be tiny beings such as sperm cells or embryonic stem cells or even bodies such as mechanical ones, large, giant robots. These are all, I would say, uh, extraordinary bodies. And starting with, with uh, literature, um, how, how is size used in Western literature? To what, to what extent is it used and in what ways? Well, I think a good example from literature would be Swift's Gulliver's Travels, um, in which... Gulliver, you know, goes off on his voyage, and uh, on part of his voyage, he is very small, um, and in other parts of the voyage, he comes upon uh, beings um, where he is, who are very tiny. So when he's uh, in the island of Lilliput, and the Lilliputians are tiny beings. And in, in these uh, confrontations that Gulliver has with beings out of size with his own, he learns about their either petty, very small uh, kinds of interests um, and behaviors, or um, can be sort of, uh, you know, amazed by um, sort of power and and strength as well. Um, So that's one example. In children's literature, we find many, many examples of uh, miniature beings or gigantic beings in folklore, um, in part because it helps to demarcate a kind of us and them. So um, races of miniatures, um, pygmies, for example, to racialize the miniature helps to kind of showcase um, what is different or other about um, the miniature body or the gigantic body. And what is the, what's, what's the purpose for doing that, in, especially in children's literature? Um, since that seems to be prevalent? Well, sometimes it's just sort of delightful. Um, in the Bowers series, you know, kind of mid-20th century series that I think is familiar to many people, uh, the Bowers are very s- small people who live domestically, you know, in the house, and they survive by um, borrowing, by using the um, objects and, and items for, from big people um, for their own good. And there's something, I think, quite delightful in children's literature, in something like The Borrowers, in which the child figure, the child character, is the big 
character as opposed to being always the small. And his or her relationship to the small characters, the small beings, helps, I think, to emphasize a, a kind of ethics of uh, responsibility to bodies out of size or out of scale with your own. Um, so how do you treat um, the very small um, person? And there's this desire that um, we see so often in, well, I want to overpower it or I want to play with the small. I want to create the small as um, doll-like or in some ways, you know, within my, my power. And many children's books um, play with that and, and kind of explore um, and ethics of the dimensions of size and how we ought to think carefully about how we might um, misuse our power um, of size difference. And speaking of small, another uh, popular character, especially in the fantasy genre, and you can't go very far without running into them, are dwarves. Um, how did dwarves uh, make their way into, into literature and now television with things like Game of Thrones? Well, I mean, I think they've sort of always been there. I mean, Tom Tom Thumb is a very, very old uh, character and is dwarf-like. Um, and certainly from folklore, um, you have, you know, the dwarf figure as um, a kind of fantastical figure. Um, again, oftentimes in interiors, like um, in fire or, you know, the, the god of fire and they're, they're, powerful and small and sort of condensed. Um, um, and we find in treatment in television programming, something like Game of Thrones or like in reality television programming, um, real life dwarves whose lives sort of fascinate us by their, their difference, their similarities and their differences. Um, and um, they've certainly become very popular in different forms of performance spaces. And it seems that with these these small characters in, in literature and popular culture, there seems to be a wide sort of range. For example, you have, um, you know, you have Tom Thumb, who's, who's kind of this fantastical character who's small. And then you also have things like Rumpelstiltskin, where it's kind of this trickster or evil character almost. Um, and in maybe in more modern times, there there were those uh, string of horror movies, Leprechaun, which is a small you know horror movie uh, mm -hmm. character. What is it that that's determining this wide range? Is there is there something feeding this perception that that they're either good and nice characters, say in Lord of the Rings, for example, or that they're these they, they sort of evil uh, trick tricksters? Well, I think the, the miniature man has always been a very protean, changeable uh, figure. So even Tom Thumb, I mean, in, Tom Thumb kind of reclaimed in children's literature is, is typically um, only what a, a sort of good character, as it were, kind of childlike character or a child at first and sort of making his way in the world. But but in many Tom Thumb variants, Tom Thumb is definitely a cunning trickster and he's also a kind of uh, eroticized figure who stands in for the phallus and is often making his way to try to have his way um, with with others, kind of uh, using his small size as a way to um, get close, as it were, um, to the queen or, or others. Um, 
so, and in Rumpelstiltskin, of course, I mean, he's an interesting figure. He has, um, you know, a deep desire, you know, for, for a child, but that desire is, is thwarted and his, his anger is kind of overwhelms him. Um, and that cunning and, and, uh, he, power that he has is, is turned, uh, against him really so i would say that the the miniature man the tom thumb or the dwarf figure is always kind of skates on that divide between um well just has a lot of desire and uh a kind of cunning trickster character and this this sort of fascination with with small characters to stay on this topic of small first doesn't just it's not just within the realm of fiction um who was who was uh, Oda Benga? Oda Benga is was a pygmy uh, from the Congo, uh, a man who was um, brought to the United States to participate in uh, the World's Fair in 1904 in in St. Louis. And one of the objects of that World's Fair was to collect peoples from around the world, native peoples from around the world, who would represent uh, difference and otherness um, to the Americans who would come and, and view them. So um, the collecting, as it were, uh, would take place all, all over the place to find persons of very small size and um, very dark color to um, sort of the, the tallest, largest um, persons um, to be displayed at the World's Fair. So Odebengo was um, a pygmy who was brought um, as part of a contingent, a few, I think there are eight or ten pygmies brought to uh, the World's Fair, and they were basically housed at, um, you know, within the fair and asked to um, kind of perform their littleness and perform their savagery, um, so-called for onlookers. And Odebengo had um, seemed to delight in in this in some ways now of course no one really asked Odebenga how he felt about that but he had uh, very sharply filed teeth and so if you paid an extra nickel you you would um, smile at you and then you could be sort of thrilled by again how different he looked. Um, Odebenga ultimately I mean his story is is a very interesting one and, and a tragic one. After the World's Fair ended um, none of the participants um, from the kind of native exhibits had to stay, of course, and um, everyone was given a small amount of money, I think less than $10, and um, were just asked to kind of go on on their way. And Odebenga had a difficult time of it. He went back to, to Africa with uh, the man who had brought him to uh, the United States originally, all of his family members had been massacred. Um, he had had no one really, so he came back to the United States and ended up in uh, the Bronx Zoo as part of an exhibit. Uh, well, as part of the primate exhibits, and he was essentially uh, incarcerated there with the primates again. And people flocked to see him uh, there in the zoo. And it wasn't until uh, a contingent of African-American Baptist ministers really intervened and said, you know, um, this is um, completely unacceptable situation. 
um, and um, this man ought not to be degraded in this way. And then Otobenga was again misplaced uh, with an orphan asylum, um, so placed with children, although he was a full, um, fully adult man. He didn't um, really find that to be the best situation for him either, and ultimately he ended up wending his way to Virginia. Um, he converted to Christianity. He had his teeth capped. Um, he spent much time alone, and in 1916, he committed suicide. And how old was he? Oh, I think in his 30s. And are there are there other examples of, of people being displayed in zoos because of their size? He's unusual in that. Um, I had not run across um, any other um, examples of persons who whose display, I mean, displaying... Um, Persons with extraordinary bodies, um, often called freaks, in uh, you know circuses and other kinds of um, performance display spaces, of course, has a very long history. Um, and um, bringing the sort of the racialized, the ethnic, um, the native, um, and parading him or her um, with others as a kind of clan or group. You know, we see that across Europe and uh, Australia, the United States. I mean, that, that is not entirely unusual, uh, especially as the new science of anthropology was kind of gaining um, ground and interest. You know, we want to, this idea that we can classify people, learn about people, um, and examine them um, watch them, et cetera. That, that's a, an idea that had, you know, some, some real history to it. But Odebenga's story is particularly tragic. And interesting, too, in the way that it has also made its way into popular culture. I mean, there's a short film about his life, at least one biography, and a children's novel that uh, tells his story. But interestingly, in that children's novel, the ending of his life is completely transformed. So rather than um, being in the zoo, rather than uh, his suicide, what happens in the children's book is that the young um, white boy, who is his foil, learns from Otabenga about kind of tolerance for others and differences. And Otabenga slips off and joins, you know, African-Americans who were in the plantation exhibit, because there was that as well, you know, sort of recreation of, you know, sort of plantation life with happy uh, slaves, um, quotation marks. Um, but that's, you know, not in any way Otomanga's actual life story. So he's erased, really. Um, and the uh, effects of colonialism and of... Um, racial classification and oppression and degradation, all of that, that history that coalesces in his, his body, um, in his person, his identity, taken away in that case. Obviously, that this happened, you know, in the, in the early 1900s, though many of the, some of the same things still exist today as, as far as, you know, classifying people by race and things like that. But as far as size... 
How has the perception of small changed over time? Is there still this fascination with it the way there was uh, maybe when when Odebengo was being uh, displayed at the zoo? Well, I think so. I mean, I think we see such in something like the proliferation and reality television programming with Little People, Big World. I mean, there are so many different spinoffs of that um, kind of show that it, it's quite uh, interesting, I think, to note how how much of a fascination there is with small bodies and, you know, uh, actual small persons, dwarf persons, um, and how they live their lives. Um, I think as well, you know, if, if we go beyond sort of actual uh, small persons. I mean, we do have a fascination, of course, with children um, and their small bodies and um, their cuteness. But I think we also exploit children and um, their small bodies for political reasons and purposes. We often talk about we're doing something for the children. um, uh, And and that is used as a kind of cover um, for uh, all kinds of things. And when it suits us, we ignore um, the different um, needs of children and, and their small bodies if we determine that their otherness or their difference, their immigration status, etc., whatever it might be, puts them, takes them out of the category of, uh, of childhood, of children, and puts them in some other different kind of category. I do think that our focus on... Uh, small bodies remains mm-hmm. and we find um, we find miniatures in many many different places and is there do you think there's a biological element to this to this fascination you're saying that people are 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 you know drawn to children and their small bodies um, is this is there a biological element here that's at work well i think it, i mean it's a, a natural element that things that are are smaller than than we are we may want to um, you know, protect in a way, or we find them vulnerable. Um, but again, I think that can shift, you know. We also can be really afraid of things that are um, that are small, um, that come in clans or, you know, groups or, you know, some proliferate in some kind of way. Um, we're concerned about, you know, hordes of things. <laughs> right. Whatever they might Killer be. Killer bees or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just um, small things. You mentioned, you know, in horror films and things like that, like the doll that comes to life or um, the puppet. I mean, these are also um, we we have suspicion and and some fear of of small bodies um, as well. They resemble us, but they're not quite the same as us. Sort of that uncanny valley in a way. Yes. Yeah. The uncanny. Exactly. So let's let's talk about uh, big bodies a little bit um, because that's a that's obviously an integral part of your book as well. Um, one thing that you talk about is uh, this sort of tendency for giants um, in in literature and things like that to be masculine. Um, why why is that? Oftentimes, uh, with the the giant or the really large, um, we associate you know, great power um, and strength with the massive. And those are kind of stereotypical ideas of, of masculinity um, come along with 
great size and, and power and strength. We, not always, but I mean, that's kind of a first sort of thought or a first emotion maybe that um, we associate, you know, with power and strength. Um, then the next thought is male, masculine. And how does how does gender influence how we react to larger sizes? What are some of what are some examples of maybe um, you know females in literature that have larger bodies? Are they positive? Are they negative? Well, um, oftentimes negative, but but an example of the positive sort of gigantic female body we can find in the tall tale tradition. Um, and there are, uh, you know, tall tale heroines um, who are, you know, really who are giants and, and who are strong and powerful and help to, you know, the myths go, you know, create great monuments in the West, uh, for example, Western United States, or um, can drive the steel or... or fish, uh, the enormous fish, or, or do whatever it is that male um, tall tale heroes can do. Um, so we do have some examples in, in literature of um, the giant female figure who is strong and powerful. Another um, great myth uh, of, the, of the powerful woman who is, uh, if, even if she's not quite embodied or not always embodied, is this idea of Mother Nature who is... Um, all enveloping, you know, uh, and um, who, you know, brings the seasons, who who uh, assists our survival. Um, so that's a, a powerful idea. But oftentimes the, the large female is scary. Um, and uh, the ogress, for example, is going to eat children uh, like her male counterpart. Um, and in, in the book, I discuss, you know, the obese, the giant female, um, uh, the obese woman, and particularly the, the obese girl, uh, which is a figure kind of that we have culturally defined as problematic. And where where does this obese girl um, appear in, say, literature and and? How has it sort of affected the way we view obesity in in everyday life? Well, in the book, I concentrate primarily on young adult literature and uh, the obese sort of teen girl uh, who who appears. And there's you know many many different examples of um, that figure. And there's been changes in, in young adult literature. I mean, obesity may well be understood as um, you know, a, a body type that at first, of course, needed to be changed. I mean, it's a problem, and the problem of, of the book and the problem of the body is uh, its overweening size, its, its, you know, largeness. We have, I think, a bit more nuanced understanding of uh, body differences, um, and I give some examples of young adult literature that, that are more sort of fat positive um, and more, you know, sort of aware of identity as it is um, not transformed by fat exactly, but that fat isn't, or being obese, being large, isn't uh, itself sort of a problem, but other aspects of maybe the teen character's life is a problem. And yet we also find young adult literature that's about 
bariatric surgery, you know, how can you change the body, you know, even as a, as a young person to um, be more uh, akin to the cultural ideal of thinness. There are many kind of different sorts of examples. Um, there is a, you know, fat acceptance movement. I don't know how widely accepted it is, you know, because we have, you know, a medical pathologization of, of fat, you know, here's what obesity is, body mass index above, I'm not sure what the number is. Um, uh, so there's a medical kind of definition, but I think we have a cultural definition as well. And that uh, women, women, girls, female characters have a greater burden um, with our, our cultural expectations of how their bodies should look and what their body size should be. And are there any benefits that you've uh, found, whether in literature or, or in pop culture references? Are there any benefits to how we view size? Well, I think there are many benefits to an awareness that we are judging um, persons and, and bodies um, and their sizes at all times, whether we want to admit it, admit it or not. So that's one of the things that I'm most interested in is a kind of bringing size to kind of greater awareness that we that we are looking at and and responding to and perceiving size all the time, whether we want to admit it or not. And I think being more aware and kind of sensitive to how we use our bodies and how we judge and measure other bodies um, can only sort of help us to, all of us, to try to avoid uh, oppressing and um, judging others, or again, being, being aware of how are you positioning, how are we all positioning ourselves in relation to, to others. And when we feel discomfort, um, or unease, that usually means you ought to stop and think about it a little bit more. Well, it's also interesting to see, uh, as you read through many of these examples, um, throughout uh, Western history especially, uh, it's interesting to see that some of these ingrained ideas that, that, that continue today started off as something that happened in, in a book or in, a, in, in some sort of uh, literature reference, and those influences are still affecting how we look at size today. So, uh, Lynn, thanks for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. The book is Big and Small, A Cultural History of Extraordinary Bodies. That does it for this week's episode of the Yale University Press podcast. Thank you for listening. You can find us at YaleBooks.com or on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And while you're there, please take a moment to subscribe and leave us a rating. 